Hey guys, it's Harry. Welcome to another episode of A to Easy. Today we're going to be talking about pharyngitis, tonsillitis, and glandular fever, which can all sort of be lumped together as this general presenting complaint of sore throat. I've got Yvonne here with me. Hello everyone, this is Yvonne. <laughs> and it's exceedingly common stuff, as you can imagine. It's both seen in primary care, exam world, and secondary care. So you need to have a really good understanding of these diagnoses and crucially how to manage them, which is different to most things in third year. Okay, so to begin, what is meant by pharyngitis? Pharyngitis is just inflammation of the pharynx and that gives rise to a sore throat clinically. The pharynx, to be clear, is the back of the mouth and it's a tube-like structure connecting the mouth, the nose and the larynx. It forms part of the upper respiratory tract and the GI tract. And the back of the throat, which we can see, is usually inflamed and is called the oropharynx. Okay, and what causes the inflammation? Well, no prizes for saying that it's commonly due to an infection. So we can also label this as an upper respiratory tract infection. And when we say infection, what kind of infection do we mean? Well, most commonly, acute pharyngitis is viral in origin, 90% of the time. Lots of viruses can cause it, including adenovirus and the Epstein-Barr virus. And less commonly, it can be bacterial. Okay, and what kind of bacteria can cause a sore throat? Well, again, lots. But the one you need to think about is strep, specifically so-called group A strep. The main organism here is Streptococcus pyogenes. Okay, Streptococcus pyogenes. And why is it called group A? So don't get too hung up on this, but the reason it's called group A is because of the thing called the Lancefield classification. And it's just a way you classify streps. The details are not worth remembering at all. The only reason I mention it is you shouldn't get confused between hemolytic status and group status. So case in point, strep pyogenes is a group A strep, but it is beta hemolytic. So you'll often hear this phrase, group A beta hemolytic strep. And that is pretty much strep pyogenes. Okay, and why do we uh, care about strep pyogenes? Well, we care because so-called strep throat can have some unfortunate consequences. Strep pyogenes is the causative organism for other conditions, and that includes acute rheumatic fever. And then later in life, they can develop rheumatic heart disease and valve problems? Exactly, that's, that's the concern with rheumatic fever. But the thing to remember is this is not a common complication of sore throat. Again, it's exceedingly rare in the UK because group A strep is not as common in here as it is in developing countries. Again, uh, I'm guessing you've had a sore throat, I've had a sore throat. We haven't all had rheumatic fever. Fair enough. And what are any other complications strep throat might have that we need to know? Yeah, so post-strep gomerinophritis, which classically happens a few weeks after getting the strep throat. Isn't there another renal complication of upper respiratory tract infection that everyone always mixes up? Yeah, so that's called IgA nephropathy. So with acute pharyngitis, to go back to it, patients can develop IgA nephropathy or they can also develop post-strep nephritis. Those are your two renal potential complications. And obviously post-strep only occurs after a strep infection, IgA not so much. Okay, so you have both of them that can have some renal problems. How would you differentiate between the two in an exam question? Yeah, so the, the clue for me is timing. So IgA nephropathy tends to happen two or three days after having the respiratory tract infection. Meanwhile, post-strep happens, say, like two, three weeks after. So I remember as IgA comes first because A is the first letter of the alphabet. That's my exam tip, if you like. <laughs> so A for IgA, so A is first. Yep. And then two, three weeks later, we have uh, post-strep. 
firstly, I want to say these conditions are more common in children. So expect to be told about a child with nephritic syndrome in either case. Okay, to summarize, sore throats are mainly viral, but there are some potential complications of bacterial infections. Specifically, group A strep could lead to rheumatic fever, post-strep, glomulonephritis, or IgA nephropathy. Yeah, it all sounds rather scary, doesn't it? But So let's just remind ourselves that, yeah, a sore throat is just generally just a self-limiting condition. The vast majority of the time, it's all fine, and it tends to last less than a week. And it's mainly viral, and it's normally all fine. You have mentioned group A strep for bacteria. Can any viral causes cause greater problems? Yeah, so Epstein-Barr virus, it can cause more problems in particular. So, Yvonne, tell me, what is the other name for EBV? Human herpes virus 4. Yeah, so the reason I mention this is because the herpes virus is the herpes viridae is the fancy term. They really have like a lot going for them. Anyway, EBV can cause infectious mononucleosis, which again, Yvonne, is also known as what? Glandular fever. Yep, which is also known as... The kissing disease. Smashed it, yes. So the clinical problem posed by sore throats in primary care is when to treat and when not to treat, right? That's what you're thinking in your head, even as a third year, because you need to know the management. And glandular fever complicates that problem, which is also called kissing disease, which is also called infectious mononucleosis. So to illustrate this, I'm actually going to tell you a story that happened to me in my third year. Ooh, story time. Excitement, I know. So just bear with me, right? My brother had this sore throat that wasn't going away and he was feeling a bit crap, a bit tired. And so he actually asked me about it, which was rare. And I had an alarm bell in my head that was like, well, you are a university student and you've just gotten a new partner and now you have a sore throat. So maybe this could be glandular fever, which you've gotten just because your partner's had EBV as in fact the vast, vast majority of people do by the time they're 30. So I, so I told him this and I think, okay, I think you've got mono or mononucleosis. And Okay, and how did he respond to that? Well, in typical brotherly fashion, at least my brother anyway, he just called me an idiot and he went to his GP. And the GP thought it was bacterial in origin and prescribed him amoxicillin. Did it happen? Yeah, so he, um, he got a widespread rash, which, okay, for reference, guys, this is like an odd quirk of being given amoxicillin when you have glandular fever, okay? So he went back to the GP and they confirmed an EBV infection. And so there are three take-home messages here. One, I'm a genius, obviously, and my brother now doesn't completely discredit my medical opinion, which is great. But two, differentiating between the causes of sore throat can be difficult. Case in point with my brother's GP. So, and thirdly, amoxicillin can cause a rash in patients with glandular fever. It's sort of a classic exam question. And when it happens, the rash can last for a couple of weeks. It's not an allergic reaction to the drug, so don't label, don't give them that red sash to wear. Okay, so amoxicillin rush, glandular fever, got it. You've also mentioned it being difficult to tell causes apart. Yeah, so viral and bacterial causes present really similarly. To help you distinguish patients clinically who are likely to have group A strep as the cause, you can either use the fever pain or centaur scoring. Neither is particularly perfect, Fever pain is slightly easier to remember, I think, because it's an acronym um, of sorts. So let's just go through that now. You get a point for each of the following of these. Fever, one. Okay, that makes some sense. And pain is the acronym. So it's purulence, which is a slang for exudate at the back of the throat. And attendance to the GP is the next one for the A. And so if they attend less than three days after having presented, that's a bad sign for you because it's clearly quite bad. And therefore, you might think this is more like to be group A strep. Next in fever pain is I, which is just for inflamed tonsils. 
and N is for no cough or chorizal symptoms. So any one of those five things gives you a point. Note, the one thing to say here is that exudate is leaking out of protein, and it's this grim white blotches found at the back of the tongue. It's a sign of potential bacterial infection. However, it isn't diagnostic, and that is what this scoring system is telling you. So if you ever see someone thinking, oh, well, they've got stuff at the back of their throat, it's obviously a bacterial infection. That's not true. But it is part of a diagnostic criteria. Okay, so pass more likely bacterial but not definitely and the higher the number in fever pain the more likely it is to be group a strep and is there any other diagnostic test for strep throat so what you can do sometimes is called a rapid strep throat antigen test however that's not always possible because you're in primary care you might not have the resources so we often use things like the fever pain score to make a diagnosis and to guide management but if say you're worried about the complications of strep throat and you want to see if a patient has recently had strep throat, you can order an ASO titer. This is a blood test looking at the levels of anti-streptolysin O, which is what it actually stands for. And all this is to you and I is just an antibody test against streptolysin O, which is made by strep bacteria. So you're looking for something that's made by strep. The antibodies take some time to return to normal levels post-infection. So they can be used to diagnose a recent strep infection in a currently well patient, and that's their use. Okay, so acetizer to test for recent strep infection. But if you have a patient in front of you, let's say four to five on the fever pain score, what do you do? So with a four or five on the fever pain, can consider prescribing antibiotics. And that's the key point. That's how you would manage a potential strep infection. So would you prescribe a penicillin-based antibiotic to treat strep throat? Yeah, so the current NICE guidance suggests penicillin antibiotics as first line for a strep throat, something called phenoxymethyl penicillin. That's first line. And the reason that's important to mention, because it's slightly less common to get a rash if you do actually have glandular fever when they prescribe this antibiotic. Okay, so usually amoxicillin, but they can also be given, according to NICE guidance, phenoxymethylpenicillin. So we have spoken about strep throat and how to deal with it, it's rare complications. We have also mentioned glandular fever. Why does it have to have all these different names? One, because medicine is complicated. But two, the good news is the names actually help you out, okay? Because they provide an insight into what is going on in this disease. So it's an infection that involves lymphocytes, which are all mononuclear cells. And that means they just have one big nucleus. But that's why it's called infectious mononucleosis. So how are the cells relevant to glandular fever? The mononuclear cells are relevant because you have some T lymphocytes specifically, which appear a few days into the infection, and they have this abnormal pathology, and it's kind of like a buzzword in medicine. So if you see the phrase atypical lymphocytes on blood film, you can think glandular fever. That's a common buzzword in exams. And why the name glandular fever? Okay, so the EBV infection can cause fevers for quite a long time, over a month. And that's because EBV infects B lymphocytes, which circulate within the lymphatic system and therefore distribute the infection around and that causes swelling and inflammation and therefore you get lymphadenopathy. And what clue does kissing disease give us? EBV can spread through the saliva, which is why you get this association with adolescents and young adults. However, it can also be transmitted by coughing and young kids can just get it too and we're not really sure why. So just to note, when you are inevitably exposed to EBV during your life, you will not necessarily develop glandular fever. In fact, the relative severity of the illness sort of goes up with age. So when kids get it, it tends to be quite a mild illness, but the people who have a rough time with it tend to be in middle age. 
To summarize, glandular fever is an infection that is common in the young, worse if you're older and it causes lymphadenopathy, fevers and a sore throat. It also commonly presents with tonsillitis, which we'll talk about shortly. Okay, and how is glandular fever investigated? You look in the mouth and you're feeling the head and neck for any lymphadenopathy and you might be feeling the abdomen for any organ enlargement and then you do your basic observations including temperature to confirm fever. Then you might want to do some blood tests. FBC will show a raised white cell count, obviously with a, with a lymphocytosis. Blood film will show you those atypical lymphocytes and these are these immature, poorly developed cells which is why they're big and that means they can produce these non-specific antibodies. The reason that's important is because you can do screening tests again for those antibodies in particular. And that's things including a Paul Bunnell or a monospot test, which are just the same thing. And they're just an antibody test which targets these antibodies. So if you have a patient with a history of glandular fever and a positive screening test, you can reasonably assume that they have glandular fever and make the diagnosis on clinical grounds. If you want to spend more money, you can do fancy stuff like checking their ABV serology, but it's not something you actually do clinically often. So to summarise, you can determine glandular fever based on the history examination, check basic ops such as temperature, full blood count to see for white cell counts and lymphocytosis, and blood film which show atypical lymphocytes. We have also our special tests like monospot and Paul Bunnell test. Yes. So we have diagnosed glandular fever. What do we do with it? Well, in short, we don't really do much. This might surprise you. It's generally a self-limiting condition. And that can last for a while, okay, to be clear. It can last for several months. Symptom control via over-the-counter medications, such as paracetamol, for the fever, they can be really helpful. But remember, this is like a viral infection, so giving antibiotics would just be useless, unlike the previous case we spoke about with uh, strep throat, which is due to a bacterial infection. And any advice we should give to the patients? Yes, good question. This is actually really important. So in exam world, the classic history you're going to get for someone who's got EBV infection, who's got infectious mononucleosis, is a, maybe like a fresher, say he's six foot five, he's just started uni and he's been partying and playing rugby. He's probably kissed someone and therefore got an EBV exposure. And you need to break his heart and tell him that actually he can't play rugby for the next six weeks. Why? So splenic rupture. Remember I said you need to examine the abdomen for any swellings or any, any organomegaly? The reason you need to think about this is because the spleen has red pulp and white pulp. The white pulp is basically the large lymph node in the body. So in the same way that you get lymphocytosis and swelling of your lymph glands in the head and neck, it also causes swelling of your spleen because it's basically a big lymph node. And therefore you get splenomegaly. And that's bad because of the red pulp. If you have a palpable swollen spleen, playing contact sports is not a good combination. The red pulp is essentially a storage of red blood cells. So roughly a third of people who have splenic rupture will die. And that's because of the heavy bleeding that ensues with all that red pulp flowing out. So this is like not a laughing matter. So even though they've just, to them, they might just have a bit of a sore throat. They might just feel kind of unwell. This is actually really important. You don't want them to have a traumatic incidence where they have a splenic rupture. Now, this is generally outside of the realms of this particular chat. But if you're clinically worried about someone who might be in this scenario, you would consider getting an bedside ultrasound of the spleen to make this diagnosis of splenic rupture in A&E. But again, thing to remember, this is a really rare complication. Just because you get EBV does not mean you'll get glandular fever. And just because you have glandular fever does not mean you will get splenomegaly and splenorupture. The other thing you might want to consider alongside splenomegaly is hepatomegaly. And this is a lot simpler. Just bear in mind that occasionally you can get patients who have a raised ALT and AST, and they're called a transaminases. They can go up in EBV and you also can get jaundice on occasion for the same reason. 
So hepatomegaly and splenomegaly, which is a really important one for exams. So the most important thing is no contact sports because when you have glandular fever, because you can rupture your enlarged spleen and then you can go into serious, serious trouble. Okay, got it. And are there any other complications we should know about? So from a patient perspective, do just bear in mind that they can get a lot of fatigue. So 10% of patients who get glandular fever will feel really washed out afterwards and that can last up to six months, and but tends to only last a few weeks. And the second is important but exceedingly rare, but I'm going to tell you about it because you need to be aware of it. We've already said EBV invades B lymphocytes and it can cause lymph adenopathy. The thing to bear in mind, therefore, is that EBV is a risk factor for cancer of the lymph glands because it's causing inflammation and swelling of the lymph glands. Specifically, it's a risk factor for Hodgkin's lymphoma. Hodgkin's can present like glandular fever. However, it will classically have some differentiating features such as weight loss to help you make the distinction between the two. Glandular fever is a risk factor for Hodgkin's lymphoma. But to be clear, the vast, vast majority of people who have EBV never develop Hodgkin's lymphoma, but it's a thing to bear in mind and there is an association. So, so far what we've spoken about is strep throat in particular, which is a bacterial cause of a sore throat. And we've spoken about glandular fever, which is a viral cause of a sore throat. With sore throats, you not only have pharyngitis as the complaint, but you also often have tonsillitis. And the two are kind of murky and mixed together, but we should have some specific conversation about tonsillitis. So the palatine tonsils are the tonsils we're referring to when we're speaking about tonsillitis. And what the palatine tonsils are is mucosa-associated lymphoid tissue, or MOLT in short. And what they do is they're there to allow the immune system to get an early look at what's going into the stomach and what's going into the lungs. That's their basic function, and that's why you have tonsils. And the problem is they can get infected and inflamed. Okay. Is there much difference between a sore throat from pharyngitis compared to a sore throat from tonsillitis? No, not really, to be honest. There's a lot of overlap between the two, as I was saying, and they can both cause sore throats and their underlying pathologies are the same. For example, you can get group A strep and glandular fever as both causes tonsillitis. Okay, so everything we have said so far for pharyngitis applies to tonsillitis as well? Yes, absolutely. So by learning about strep throat and EBV infection, you've doubled your money and you've learned about pharyngitis and tonsillitis. And I wouldn't be surprised if a few people listening have already made that assumption, frankly. But there are a few extra bits about tonsillitis that I want to tell you about. So firstly, patients can develop recurrent tonsillitis. And in these patients, you should consider referral for tonsillectomy. Okay, so how recurrent is recurrent? Well, there, there are lots of different criteria, but there's, there's one that's quite easy to remember. And it's because if you remember that tonsils has seven letters to it. Therefore, if a patient gets tonsillitis in one year, seven times in a row you can refer to ENT to consider a tonsillectomy. But that's one to maybe remember. Wow, seven times in a year sounds insane. Yeah, it's really good. <laughs> yeah. So when we talk about severe, what do we mean? So the worrying signs of severe tonsillitis are when the patient cannot swallow their own saliva or when their tonsils are so enlarged that they touch each other. And that's referred to as kissing tonsils. So lots of kissing with a sore throat, I see. Yeah, right. <laughs> So why are these signs concerning? Okay, so think from an A to E perspective. Think about the airway. The tonsils are large and inflamed, and if they're big enough, they can actually block the airway. And if you can't breathe, well, that's going to kill you. So this is really bad. However, it's pretty rare. The other key complication is that if you can't swallow, so when people turn up clinically, 
they often haven't been drinking or eating properly for a while and you might want to consider that they could be dehydrated and might need treatment for that so if you have these red flag uh, features of kissing tonsils and not being able to drink you send them to a and e yeah so you you want to do that because they can get further assessment there really you should also send them if you see a large one-sided swelling around the tonsils and why do you think that's important um could they have an abscess around the the tonsil yeah so if you have a large one-sided swelling that can be called a peritonsillar abscess and it's a potential complication of all sore throats and the key thing is the abscesses need drainage so they need a referral for that do you know the one word term for a peritonsillar abscess quinzy yes exactly so if you hear the phrase quinzy all ent mean is a peritonsillar abscess and when you're thinking that you think drainage but let's move back to tonsillectomy and the surgery for removing tonsils for a second. So say a patient underwent tonsillectomy after having had recurrent tonsillitis. What can go wrong after their operation? Maybe some bleeding. Yes, and I mention this specifically because a post-tonsillectomy bleed doesn't actually sound that bad to the uninitiated. It's like, you know, oh, tonsillectomy is a routine operation. This is probably fine. It's, you know, it's common. Wrong wrong this is a surgical emergency okay why do you think it's important because they can lose a lot of blood so there are two concerns here one they can lose a lot of blood and they can potentially die there is a mortality rate associated with post-tonsillectomy bleeds but two if you're bleeding into the airway that can obstruct the airway and if you haven't got an airway you're not going to survive so from those two points alone this is an emergency and you might think, oh, why do they bleed so much? It's just the tonsil, right? Well, the tonsil is supplied by five out of eight branches of the external carotid artery, okay? So if I said to you, your external carotid is bleeding, you would tell me that's an emergency. And that's what I'm essentially telling you. ENT are very interested to know about them, so refer immediately, okay? To be honest, that sounds terrifying when you put it that way. Yeah, sorry to finish on what is quite an intimidating note, but the point is it takes us from diagnosing a sore throat to management and... Hi everyone, this is Sally and I'm here with your summary. Tonsillitis and pharyngitis have very similar presentations and underlying causes. Most cases are viral, however strep pyogenes is a potential bacterial cause. Strep throat can cause acute rheumatic fever or post-streptococcal glomerulonephritis. Determining the cause of a sore throat is difficult, so clinical scoring systems such as fever pain can help identify the likely cases of strep throat. Rapid strep antigen testing can aid diagnosis and ASO titers are used to confirm recent infection. A course of phenoxymethyl penicillin is first line for strep throat. Glandular fever can be mistaken for strep throat. Antibiotics, particularly amoxicillin, cause a widespread macular papular rash in glandular fever. It's caused by infection with the Epstein-Barr virus and is common in young people. It causes tonsillitis, lymphadenopathy and fevers. The diagnosis is usually clinical, however a blood film can show atypical lymphocytes and a pool bunnel antibody test will be positive. Glandular fever is generally a self-limiting condition, but it can cause splenomegaly which increases the risk of splenic rupture. EBV infection is also a risk factor for Hodgkin's lymphoma. And that's everything. Thanks so much for listening guys. Bye.